when I beheld, I blessed every time. I bless Yahuwah of glory, who made those great and splendid signs, that they might display the magnificence of his works to angels and to the souls of men, and that these might glorify all his works and his op- and operations, might see the effect of his power, might glorify the great labor of his hands, and bless him forever. Enoch 36, one. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. I am Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is my dad and also the pastor, Richard Washington. As you know, we've been studying. He's been giving us a study on the science of the sacrifice. It's been very knowledgeable. We are on the fourth part today. If you haven't missed the first three, I suggest you go back and review the first three. And so you can get caught up on what's going on, because each week it kind of builds on each other. If you have any questions or comments while this podcast is live, uh, feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com or put your message or comment in the chat and we will get to it. Now, if you're watching it after the live and you still have a question, email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com and we will get to it on the next live podcast. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. So pastor, we are on part four of the science of the sacrifice. Okay. So let's make a transition here. Uh, What we did last week, we tried to look at the seed of Satan and also the seed uh, of the woman. And what we looked at, we found out who the serpent was and also what his seed was. I believe that we engaged somewhat in who the woman was and indirectly we dealt with a seed. So what we want to start with today, we want to start with who is the seed of the woman. But before we... uh, to the seed of the woman. We're going to backtrack a little bit and also uh, kind of go over in somewhat of a review of who the woman is. So we'll try to cover two things uh, here today is who is the woman in Genesis 3.15 and who is her seed. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for another opportunity to be able to come together and discuss your word and to have an interaction with the things that you have placed within your scriptures that we may have a better understanding. Bless him who delivers and bless those who listen. Bless those who inquire within your word and have questions, that those questions may be answered. And if they are not answered, as we continue to probe into your word, that we may eventually find that which we are looking for. Bless my host, bless each person that listens. And most of all, bless our relationship with you, that we can feel your presence and know that your grace is here. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, our first text that we want to turn to is found in the book of Genesis. And here in the book of Genesis, we want to look at chapter 3, verse 15. And the Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, 
and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, as we've pointed out, the Bible says, I will put enmity between thee. And we found out that thee was the serpent, and the serpent was actually the devil working behind the serpent. He said, I put an enmity between thee and the woman. Okay, now that we know who the thee or the <clears throat> serpent is and Satan, now we want to find out who is this woman. We touched on it last week, but we want to kind of reset the stage to go over some of this again. Now, who who is this woman? <clears throat> and we have looked at the serpent as Satan. Let us now concentrate on the, the woman. Let us disclose who the woman is. So when we understand the woman, then we can move on to understand who the woman's seed is. So in the same in some of the same texts which we use to uncover who the serpent is, we can use the same text to disclose who the woman is in Genesis 3:15. So when we look upon the pro, when we look upon Genesis 3:15 in a prophetical way, we can be able to discern who the woman is. So what we want to do here, we find in Genesis 3.15, it is some fulfillment of, in Genesis 3.15, find some of its fulfillment in Revelations and chapter 12. So let us turn to Revelation chapter 12 and see how it articulates prophetically what is going on in the 13th chapter of in in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Okay, that's Revelation chapter 12. And we want to consider a few verses there. Okay, Revelation chapter 12, and we want to use verse number one. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verse one, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. So the woman is described as a great wonder in heaven, <clears throat> and it tells us how she was clothed. She had on, as it were, the brightness of the sun underneath her feet, with the moon, and a crown of twelve stars was upon her head. And then it goes on further to say in verse number two, it says, And she being with a child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. So this description is no doubt is depicting Mary when she was carrying Yeshua and Herod who sought to destroy her child. Okay. Now, so in Genesis 3.15, it talks about the enmity that Satan would have for the child. And so now we have read here in the book of Revelation 
that it speaks to us about the fact that this woman, she traveled with a child. She was carrying a child, and <clears throat> this particular child that she was carrying, uh, according to the Bible, says, and she was in pain to be delivered in verse 2 of Revelation 12. And then in verse, notice what it says in verse 4 of Revelation 12. It said, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Okay. Now, when we look at that part of the prophecy, you can see the hatred going on between the serpent and the woman. You can see that right here. And this type of hatred that was going on between the woman and Satan was certainly not Eve, was certainly not Eve, because Eve, by the time Book of Revelation was written, was long off the stage of action. So the woman in Genesis 3:15 could not have been Eve. Okay. Now the Bible says that as soon as that woman here in Revelation was about to deliver, it said that Satan was trying to get to the woman to devour the child. Okay, now let us turn to Matthew. And as we turn to Matthew, we want to look at the third chapter, Matthew chapter 3, and we want to look at verse number 13. Okay. Ma Matthew, the third chapter, and I believe that's verse... Well, Matthew 3, let me see. Well, actually, it's uh, Matthew chapter chapter 2. It's actually, uh, it's actually chapter 2 rather than chapter uh, 3. So we want to look at Matthew chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we want to look at verse number 3. So now here's what it says. I mean, we won't look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, that is. And the Bible says, And when they were departed, talking about Mary and Joseph and Yeshua, behold, the angel of Yahuwah appeared uh, to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be there until I bring thee word. So why did the angel tell Mary and Joseph and Yeshua to flee into Egypt? Well, he goes on further to say in the 13th verse of the, of the second chapter of Matthew, he said, for Herod, for Herod would seek the young child to destroy him. Now, when we look in the book of Revelation in verse number four, it says, which was ready to deliver the child that Satan was seeking to devour the child as it was born. And we see that Herod was doing the same thing in the gospel to destroy the child. So we see here in this particular passage that if we are to measure Genesis 3.15, it is a prophetical uh, utterance of the fact that the serpent, which is the devil, would seek to destroy the child, Yeshua, before he was born, okay? 
But the angel told Joseph to take the child and Mary down to Egypt. However, there is another depiction of the woman in this same passage. So let us look at this woman again and see who she portrays. Now, the first portrayal we have is that of Mary. Okay, we have Mary. Now we want to go back to Revelation, and we want to look at a few verses there. And the first verse that we want to look at in Revelation is Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. And the Bible says here, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared for Elohim, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, when it when it talks about a thousand two hundred and threescore days, which is one thousand two hundred and sixty days, oftentimes in Bible prophecy, sometimes a day is for a year. So we are talking about twelve hundred and sixty years. Now we know in history that twelve hundred and sixty years was a period that was being covered from five thirty eight BC to 1798 B.C., which was 1,260 years. And that was the time of the reign of the papacy. And the reign of the papacy came from uh, Romanism. And Romanism is what we call the Roman Catholic Church, a period of many years in which the Roman Church changed many of the things and the scriptures and the teachings that the original Bible had and place their teachings on their own that was separated from the Bible. In other words, their own concoctions, which were contrary to Yah's word. So it was during this period of time that many changes was going on. Moreover, what we find here, they began to persecute the churches as well. So in this passage, it further states that the dragon persecuted the woman which brought forth the male child. Now let us read verses 13 through 17 in this same 12th chapter of Revelation to see who this woman is. He said, And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the face of the serpent. Now, if you notice in verse 14, he gave the woman wings prophetically to be able to escape into a place where Elohim had prepared. And then it talks about a time, times, and a half a times. Now, these times, times, and a half a times corresponds with verse number six, where it talk about the 1260 years. Because when you talk about one time, uh, Hebrew year is three, uh, Hebrew year is 360 days. And then if you got two years, that's 720. And then if you got a half a year, that's 180. And when you add that together, what do you come out with? 1260. So the times, times, and a half a time corresponds with the 1260 days, which are mentioned in verse number six. Now, we know that Mary did not live no 1260 years. 
but it's still talking about the woman. So the woman that it's talking about here was not Mary, but about Elohim's church. In other words, the church that believed in Elohim, then that's the church that he wanted to persecute. Now, let us continue to read on, 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 on further. Now, here we find in verse 15, it says, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now notice verse 17. It said, And the dragon was wroth. In other words, the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of Elohim and gave the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. So what we're seeing here is that the woman not only represented Mary, but the woman also represented the church, the called-out assembly of Elohim's people. So here, in this part of our assessment of the woman, she symbolizes the church. So here we have, so here we have it. In Genesis 3.15, we have the woman. And when we look in the book of Revelation, Mary was fleeing from Herod to go down into Egypt, and we have the church fleeing from Rome, so it would not be under persecution of Rome. Now that we have found out who the woman represents, let us discover who is her seed? Who is the woman's seed now? We know who the woman is, so let's find out who her seed is. Okay, now, when we look, when we look at again at Genesis 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Now, we know, that, we know who Satan's seed is. Those who are the followers of Satan, even his fallen angels, we know they, they are his seed. Because everything that is evil came from him, and those who follow him are his seed. Now we are looking specifically at who the woman's seed is. Okay, so it says here, and I will put hatred between thy seed and her seed. So it's talking about not only hatred between the serpent and the woman, but it's talking about the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. There's going to be a hatred that is going on. So we want to find out who is the woman's seed. Just who is the seed of the woman? Who is Mary? As we consider her seed contains all of the characteristics of that which comes from. So when we talk about Mary's seed, we're talking about a seed that has all of the characteristics from that which it comes from, okay? So in Genesis, we are given the laws which governs a seed. So let us turn to that law again. We repeated it on a number of occasions. And we want to look at Genesis 1.11 that tells us about the law of the seed. And the Bible says in the 11th verse of the first chapter of Genesis, and Elohim said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. 
So this is a law in the plant, animal, and the human kingdoms. Moreover, this law holds true with Elohim's seed as well. The Hebrew word for seed is zirah, Z-E-R-A, zirah, which could be singular or plural. Seed could be a, a, a singular noun or a plural noun. And it means progeny or offspring or seed time. If Mary has a seed, where did it come from? Since Mary is a human and she is able to procreate according to the scriptures, notice what it says in Genesis 1, 28. The Bible says that Elohim said in verse 28, and Elohim blessed them, talking about Adam and Eve, and Elohim said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over everything that creepeth upon the earth. So what it is saying here is that he gave Eve and Adam the ability to procreate, to be able to bear children according to the scriptures. It not only states that humans can procreate, but they can also marry. Notice what it says in Genesis 2.24. In Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So here we see they can procreate and they can marry. That's what humans do. So here it states that the humans can marry and give in marriage. Humans reproduced. And if that is so, how does a woman have a seed? Okay. So we're saying if she reproduces, how does she have a seed? Because a woman doesn't have a seed. She had to get a seed from some, somewhere else. She have to get it from a man. Okay. So we got to trace down where is a seed coming from? Okay. The first text that we want to use in this part of our discourse is found in Matthew. I want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 13. And in the 13th chapter of Matthew, we want to look at verses 24 and 25. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 25. Now, here's what it says. Here it says in verse 24 of the 13th chapter of Matthew, it said, And another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Okay. So he's talking about the seed that was sown. He said there was two types of seeds that were sown. The good man sowed the good seed, which was the wheat. And the evil or the enemy, he sowed a seed, and that seed was tares. He sowed them in the same field. Now we want to turn to the book of Mark, book of Mark, chapter 4 and verse 14. So we see that the wheat represented the good seed and the tares represented the evil seed. Now here in the 14th verse of Mark, chapter 4, here's what it says. It says, the sower sowed the word. So here Mark is saying that the seed that Matthew was talking about, he said the seed that he sowed was the word. That was the word, okay? 
All right, now let us see what Luke says. Mark says that the seed was the word. Now, Luke says in chapter 8, in verse 11, here's what Luke says. Luke says that now the parable is this, okay? That's Luke 8, 11. He said the parable is this. And he's talking about the same parable that Mark and Matthew is talking about. He said the seed is the word of Elohim. Hmm. He said the seed is word of Elohim. Okay, we're trying to find out where did Mary get our seed. Then the Bible said the seed is the word of Elohim. Okay, now let's turn to uh, the Gospel of John. That's the fourth gospel. Now, now the Gospel of John is not a synaptic gospel because John doesn't uh, bring in the same things that the synoptic gospels bring in. The reason why they call it the synoptic gospels is because they are similar in their content, but John is not the same in the content. But in this particular matter, he does speak about uh, the word. They said the seed was the word. Now, here's what John says. John says in his gospel, the first chapter, in verse number one, he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with Elohim, and the word was Elohim. So here we are seeing that John speaks about the word. Mark says the word. I mean, Luke says that the word is of Elohim. And Mark says uh, that the seed is the word. And Matthew also points out that we have the seed, which is the wheat that represents the good word and the tares that represents the evil word. So according to the scripture, a seed is the word of Yah. Just like Yah sowed the seed in the creation of this world, he also sowed a seed in the womb of Mary. For we are told that the word was made flesh. Okay. Now, when we look in John chapter 1 and verse 2, we are told that the, the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, verse 14 of the first chapter of John says, and the word was made flesh. Now, how was it made flesh? It was made flesh because it had to come through what? It had to come through Mary, and she was able to provide the fleshly body and dwell among us, and we beheld the glory of the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here the Bible says that the Word was made flesh. The only way the Word was made flesh is what? It had to come through Mary. So here we see that Mary had something in her womb, had a seed that came from somebody, but we got to find out who the seed came from because it said that that seed that was in her was made flesh. So how did she get the seed? Where does the seed come from? So here we are told in the book of Matthews that Mary's child would be of what? The Holy Ghost. Let us turn to Matthew's chapter. Let us turn back to Matthew's chapter 1. Let us find out how does she get that seed. So here we are saying in Matthew's chapter 1, and we are looking at a couple of verses here. How does she get that seed? Now, okay, now, if she, according to Matthews, 
uh, according to John, that is, said that the seed or the word was made flesh, and which the word is the seed, if it was made flesh and it came through Mary, how did she get it? Well, let's let the Bible speak. Matthew chapter 1, and we're looking at verse number 18. It said, Now the birth of Yeshua, the Messiah, was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that, what it says. It said, before they came together, she already had the child of the Holy Ghost, okay? And then we go down to verse number 20, which says, but while he thought, in other words, he was trying to think, well, if my wife is already pregnant before I get married, he began to think on these things, that behold, the angel of Yahuwah appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. So he was kind of confident. Joseph let him know that his wife had not performed fornication, but that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost was putting that within her womb, okay? He was putting that which in her, in her womb. So she was conceived of by the Holy Ghost. Now, when it says the seed of the woman, we must take into consideration that the woman in the natural world is the carrier of the seed. However, she receives it from the man. So if the woman in our verse has a seed, where did she get it from? Where did she get it? Her seed could not be that of Adam or of any of his offspring. Why is that so? This is because that the scripture teaches that when Adam transgressed, he not only contaminated his seed, but also every seed that would come forth from his progeny or from his offspring or from his children. So let us see why it could not have been a human seed that Mary had. We have to, we have to check that out. Where did that seed come from? Okay, let us go to the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, we want to turn to chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15, and we want to consider a few verses there in the 15th chapter of Leviticus, and that's verses 16 through 18. Now, listen to what this has to say. Leviticus chapter 15, verses 16 through 18. It said, And if any man's seed of copulation go out from him, then he, then he shall wash all his flesh in water, and be unclean until even. And every garment and every skin whereon is the seed of copulation shall be washed with water and unclean until the even. The woman also with whom man shall lie with seed of copulation, they shall both bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the even. So the Bible is saying that the seed of man is unclean. So he couldn't use an unclean seed in the womb of Mary. So the Bible said they had to wash in water, and when they washed in water, they would be unclean until the even. 
So when the evening came after they washed in water, then they were considered clean. Now, let us go in the New Testament, so-called, and in the New, we want to go to 1 Peter. We want to go to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. And in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1, we want to look at verse number 23. Now, notice what it says here in the 23rd verse of the first chapter of 1 Peter. It says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, by the word of Yah, which liveth and abideth forever. So what this text is saying, that uh, we who have the Messiah, we are born of what? Not a corruptible seed, but an incorruptible seed. Because we have found out that man's seed is corruptible. So we cannot represent the Messiah who comes through Mary as a corruptible seed. It was incorruptible. So what Peter is saying here is that being born again, and he says not of corruptible seed, because corruptible seed will be that unclean seed. But incorruptible seed, in other words, the seed that has not been corrupted was word, and Elohim, son, came forth from the word, which is the seed that John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh, and it dwelt among us. But it didn't come from man's seed. Man had nothing to do with this because his seed was corrupt. He could not put his seed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit would not touch an unclean seed to put in, in into Mary. He could only handle that which was purified and sanctified that the Holy Spirit could be able to put within Mary. So here in these texts of Scripture, they point out to us the uncleanness of man's seed and his corruptibleness, and when we consider the seed of fallen mankind, it is contaminated seed. The seed of a man is contaminated with evil, corrupted with sinfulness, unclean with filthiness, and morally unholy. However, the seed of the woman is pure and good, incorruptible and sinless, clean and righteous, and immortal and holy. That's the type of seed that Mary had. There are scholars and theologians who have attributed Joseph as being the one to have provided the seed to his wife Mary. However, was the seed spoken of in Genesis 3.15 from Mary and Joseph? We are given in Scripture the, both the land of Mary and Joseph concerning the, the descendants up to the coming of Yeshua, born of Mary. So let us look at the lineage from which Yeshua has come, okay? And we want to turn back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. So here in Matthew chapter 1, we want to consider verse number one. Okay, Matthew chapter one and verse one. Here's what it said. First chapter, first verse, it said, the book of the generation of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Okay, now, uh, it says that he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So what we, as we read in the genealogy of Matthew, it starts with Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham, and from Abraham all the way to Joseph. Now, if you notice in verse 2, and we come all the way down through the genealogy to verse number 16, it shows the lineage of Yeshua. Okay. And from Abraham all the way to Joseph, and once having gotten to Joseph, we want to notice two factors, two factors. Okay, now, we want to we wanna go to uh, the, the 16th verse, the 16th verse of Matthew chapter 1. And here's what it says. It said, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Yeshua, who is called the Messiah. Okay, now, what we want to know is two things. The first factor we want to notice is every person listed up until Joseph, it points out whom they were begotten of. In other words, if you look at verse number 2 of Matthew chapter 1, it said, And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, and his brethren. And it goes all the way down saying, and he begat, and he begat. Okay? So, one begat the other, one begat the other, up until you get to verse number 16. It said, and Jacob begat who? Joseph. Okay? All right, now, it points out whom they had begotten of, whom they were begotten of. However, when we read in verse 16, notice what it says. It says in verse 16, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of, of Mary, of whom was born Yeshua, who is called the Messiah. Now notice how it doesn't say that Joseph begat anybody. It doesn't say that. It changes from begotten to being the husband of Mary. Now, you don't see that in the other genealogy where it says so-and-so begotten so-and-so, and then he was the, he was the husband or some, somebody. You don't see that. So why is the narrative changing when it gets to verse 16, when it comes to Yeshua? It doesn't say he's the son of Joseph. It merely says that the narrative changed to Joseph being the husband of Mary, and then it points out that Mary gave birth to him but it never says that Joseph was the father. However, when we read in, in the 16th verse, we see the wording is changed. There isn't the same word that's used in speaking of Yeshua coming into being. All the patriarchs prior to Yeshua were given an earthly father by saying after each of them that they were begat from the person before them. However, when it comes to Yeshua, nowhere does it say that Joseph begat Yeshua. Now, the second factor, outside of changing the begat to the husband, the second factor, or we notice, is that Jacob begat Joseph and changes the marriage and changes the, the narrative to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Yeshua. So in verse 16, there isn't any indication 
that he was the son of Joseph. It merely states that Joseph was the husband of Mary. So why is a change in the narrative that, that Joseph, the part that Joseph played was not the giving birth to Yeshua, but the part that he played is that he was the wife of Mary. And then it goes on to say Mary came, uh, that Yeshua came from Mary. But in the other narratives, it says that the seed that was departed to the woman, that he begat a son, and that son could name his father through the seed that had been planted. But when it comes to Yeshua, it only says that Joseph was the son of Jacob, and then Joseph was now not the father of Yeshua, but Joseph is now the husband of Mary, and then it takes on the narrative of saying that Yeshua came from Mary, and there was no connection between Yeshua and Joseph. The connection is with Mary, his mother. Now, what we want to look at, could it be that the seed in her was not from Joseph because, after all, we are told in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 25, it tells us this. The Bible says, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. So here we can understand what verse 16 is saying, that he was from Mary and not from Joseph. He said because he never knew her until she brought forth her firstborn. So if he didn't know her, it certainly couldn't have been a seed. So his seed was corrupt in the first place. You couldn't use it. In the second place, it says he did not know his wife. So if he didn't know her, she definitely couldn't, couldn't have got a seed. And he knew her after she brought forth her firstborn, and he called his name Yeshua. Okay, so, uh, so we are seeing plainly here that Joseph is not the father of Yeshua. We are told that the child Mary bore was as a result of the Holy Ghost before they could come together. Now let us examine Luke's account of the genealogy of Yeshua. Let's go to the book of Luke in the third chapter, Luke chapter 3. So we see with positive evidence from the scriptures that Joseph was not the seed that was deposited in Mary. Her womb did not contain a seed. So we want to go to the chapter 3 of Luke. <clears throat> and in chapter 3, we want to look at verse 23. Notice what verse 23 says. The Bible says, the Bible says, and Yeshua, Yeshua himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as it were, supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now, what I want, to, want you to notice about Luke's genealogy, Luke starts with Yeshua, and he works all the way back from Yeshua, all the way back to the creation. So when you go through all of the families of Mary and Joseph, you come to verse 38, which says, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Seth, 
which was the son of Adam, which was the son of Elohim. Now notice that. But let us go back to verse 23, because here in Luke's account of the land of Yeshua, he starts with Yeshua and goes all the way back to Elohim. That's Luke 23 to 38. However, in Luke's account of introducing Yeshua to Joseph, does not give us an indication that he was actually his biological son. What we notice is that Luke says that Yeshua being, as was supposed, the son of Yosef, why is there a supposition when it comes to Yeshua being the son of Yosef? And there aren't any other suppositions in the other descendants which uh, follow. When you read from Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, there's no suppositions. Every time it says somebody begotten so-and-so and you begotten so-and-so and you begotten so-and-so, it never says suppose. So why is Luke in the 23rd chapter, I mean in 23rd verse of the third chapter, why is he saying that when Yeshua was supposed the son of Joseph. Why is he saying supposed to be? Well, it's, it's obvious. If Luke knew that the word was of Elohim, he said it himself in Luke 8, 11, that the word was from Elohim and Yeshua is described as the word. He knew that the corruptible seed couldn't have been Joseph's seed. So what he does there, he says, who suppose the son of Joseph. Why would you say suppose? If he was actually the son of Joseph, all you had to do is follow the same narrative that you followed with all of the other patriarchs. All you had to do is say he was the son of Joseph. Why would he say suppose to have been the son of Joseph? For the mere fact that Luke inserts the parenthetical remark, he, like Matthews, didn't see Yeshua actually being the son of Joseph. Now, we're going to stop there so exactly where did Mary's seed come from? Next week, we're going to zero in on exactly where Mary got a seed from if she didn't get it from Joseph. Father, that as we continue to see your word, that we may properly understand your scriptures and to be able to understand where your seed actually came from so that we can understand what the sacrifice is all about. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. Amen. So, all righty. Um, you know, it's interesting how you said that Yah didn't use man's seed because it was corrupt. And I right. never really thought about mm. that because... Once Adam and Eve sinned, the seed was corrupted because everybody yeah, that's born into this world was sin. So mm -hmm. Yah had to implant his own seed because that's there the only go. seed he had that was righteous. Right. And all. And I, man, I, I never thought about that. That's mm -hmm. deep. That is yeah, deep. Yeah, we'll be. And so next week we're going we're gonna to go right into where that seed came from because mm. it didn't come from man. Mm. Mm. And um, and it's interesting. It seems like too. I don't recall in reading, and I could be wrong, 
that whenever Yahusha spoke of the Father, it was not, never Joseph. It was always the Father in heaven. Right. That's his father. That was his, that was his real father. Yeah, because I never recall him speaking of Joseph being yeah. a father. And then how you brought out also how Luke even says, as was supposed. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, parentheses yeah. and all. Um, let's see. Uh, now, I had a question regarding the, the uh, 12 stars. Mm-hmm. Are the 12 stars the representation of the 12 tribes of Yasharel? Yeah, you could, uh, you, yeah, you could equate the 12 stars because, uh, let me see, uh, let's go to, let's go back to Genesis chapter, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Okay, let me see. I think we can define those 12 stars. Okay, here in Genesis chapter 37, I want to look at, uh, let me see. Uh, oh, yeah, verse, let us look at verses uh, 9. Uh, let me see. Okay, we'll start with verse 9. I think that can basically answer what you're asking. It said, And he dreamed yet another dream, and he told it his brethren, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Now, here's what his father said to him when he told his brethren the dream. He told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him, and he said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? Okay, now, so let's look at it. Uh Now, if you go into verse 9, it says the, the son... Okay, and that represented the father, uh-huh. and the moon represented his mother, and the uh-huh. eleven stars represented his brothers. So that twelve stars on the crown of the head of the woman must have been the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, wow, wow, man! So, <laughs> I man, it, it, it all this stuff started to make sense why, when Israel re- went astray, why Yahuwah was so angry with us. You know, mm-hmm. like, man, wow. It, it basically all the pieces are just like a puzzle starting to be put together. Uh, we have a question that was uh, uh, sent in, mm-hmm. and it reads, uh, how do we know when we should use the day for a year principle? Very okay, somebody want to know about the day and the year principle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh let me let me see. Uh, l- let me do it this way. Uh, I think in some of my studies, I've actually pointed out how to determine that. But let me try to recollect some of that because it's not it's on my mind, but not freshly on my mind. But we can uh, look at it. 
Okay. Now, the fr one of the principles that we use uh, for whether it could be uh, literal or symbolical or or whether we just use a year for a day uh -huh. is that generally, you know, generally when you look at uh, especially uh, texts like in Ezekiel and I think in Jeremiah and also in the book of Numbers when they had went over to spy out the land for 40 days and for 40 years, for 40 days. But he said, because you didn't believe you can get in, I give you a day for a year. Now, when you deal with the day for a year uh, in that type of context, now, now let me see. Uh, uh, let me see what we got here. <clears throat> let me see. If, uh, let me see. Well, usually, uh, usually, when you deal with a day for a year, usually now, it's in prophecy. In other words, it's usually in a prophetical setting. Uh -huh. In other words, generally, if you say a number of years, literally, generally, it doesn't, you, you don't generally make that uh, a year, just like a person say, uh, I'm going on a journey for 38 days. Well, generally, you wouldn't you wouldn't make that out of 38 years, mm -hmm. okay? But generally, in prophecy, since prophecy is talking about that which is in the future, in a prophetical setting, generally, when you use uh, statements like we used here today in the sixth verse of the 12th chapter of Revelation, where it says. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath placed, been placed a, a place prepared for Elohim, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Okay, now here's the principle. This is a prophecy. Because if you look at the church, it was not only persecuted for a literal 1,260 days. It it went for years. Mm. The prophecy goes for years. If you had 120 days, uh, it never would have got up to 1798 when they were still persecuted people. You you wouldn't have gotten there. So generally, when it's a prophetical thing, it's a year for a day. Okay, it's a year. So if you had 1260 days, you're going to have 1260 years. That's in prophecy. Now, the other the other way that you can interpret a uh, year for a day, uh, I mean a, a year for a day, is because the prophecy generally takes on an abnormal approach. Okay, now what do I mean by abnormal approach? Okay, if I if I say to you, I saw a lion walk down the street. Okay. Yeah, I was over in, I could say I was over in Africa and I saw a lion walk down the street. I don't think you would think about the fact that I'm literally talking about a lion. That that's what I'm talking about. Okay. But generally in prophecy, when it speaks about a lion or 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 a beast. 
it's not spoken of in the same sense that a literal line, lion is spoken of. Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, let, let's, let's show what we mean. Right here in the book of Revelation, we're going we're gonna to show you what it means. The Bible says here in Revelation 12, 14, now notice what it says. It said, and to the woman was given two wings as of an eagle. Now, you know a woman don't have no wings of an eagle. You know that, and I know that. Okay, right? He said, she was given two wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place. Okay, so what we are looking at here, when she was given the two wings of an eagle, that makes her abnormal. In prophecy, a lot of things are abnormal. They don't follow the same sequence as a normal thing. If they said a lion, they would just be sure to a lion. But then when they say with eagle wings, human beings do not have wings. But when you put the wings on it, you make it somewhat abnormal. So what you are saying is that this is a prophecy. And in the prophecy, you got two things. You got the prophetical utterance of a time period that could not have been in a small time period but it covers a large expanse. And so you would interpret a day for a year. And when you look at this, the symbols in there of a woman having wings, then you would say to yourself, this is a prophecy. And use a prophecy, you would interpret that when it comes to time, they're talking about a day for a year. But when you take off the abnormality and just put it just as Elohim made it, he made a lion a lion, not with no eagle swings. Because when you read the book of Daniel and it talks about the kings of the earth, he says that uh, the first kingdom of Babylon was represented by a lion with eagle's wings. And then it talks about a bear being humped up. And then it talks about a leopard with four wings. And then it talks about uh, an indescript iron beast. You know, beast is not made out of iron. So when you get into the realm of prophecy, oftentimes time takes on a different dimension. And those are two of the factors, but there, there, there are more. But one is because it's prophecy, and another is because the imagery of the prophecy is changed in order to designate a time period. So he says a year for a day. Now, if that doesn't answer the question, uh, get uh, write it in again, and we'll give it to you. And in the meantime, if I can go back to that discourse that I have on how you make the change from uh, regular time to prophetical time, I'll be able to uh, bring that back to you. But thanks for the question. And we have a kind of, I guess, a request more than a question. And it reads, would you, would if be possible, would it be possible for you to give a lesson on how Yahusha is the son of David? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, so how Yeshua is the son of David? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. I'd be glad to. Yeah, that's 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 been a that's that's been a question. Uh, well, actually, the question that you're asking, uh, it has not really been satisfied in the minds of many many pe people because if if he's if he's the son of David, uh, let, let, let's look at uh, let me see. 
and yeah, I, I'll probably be able to give, give something on that. Uh, but in the meantime, let me see. It was a text, I believe it was in a, let me see here. Let me see. I think it's in the 111th division of the Psalms. Okay, let me see. All right, Psalms uh, 111. Now, in this particular psalm, uh, yeah. uh, let's see. It's, um, no, that wasn't that. Uh, let me see. Okay, but anyway, the text that I was looking for, uh, it was springing about how David, when he was writing his uh, songs, he appealed, he said, oh, yeah, Psalms 110, that's what I wanted. Here it is. Psalms 110 and verse 1, it said, Yah said unto my Adonai, or Yah, sit thou on thy right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Now, this is David writing this. Okay, now, if David is writing this and saying that one Yah said to another Yah, so what does that say? That say you have the Father here and you have the Son. Now, how is David saying, uh, how is David writing about this and saying that Yah is saying to his Son, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool? He said, now, how can he say that and then turn around the person that he is talking about is saying that he is his son, and then how can he be his son when David is spoken about him who is in eternity before he came to this world? So how can he be the son of David? And if David is talking about him before he got here, as being the son of the father. So that's some of the questions that we enter into this because when Yeshua was on the earth, he put this question to the Jews and they didn't want to answer him because if they really had answered him, how can he be the son of David when David was actually prefacing his remarks in this Psalms to the father and to the son? And they didn't want to answer because if they had answered, they would have had to admit that Yeshua on earth was a son. But I'll, I'll try to get that discourse. I'll make a mark of it, of how Yeshua is the son of David. And that's, that, that's a pretty good, interesting study when I went into it. And so we'll try to get to that study. Okay, I think with that, we will head over to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. Well, today on Let's Talk About It is kind of a touchy subject with a lot of religions and even with some of our fellow Hebrew brethren who have just become woken up. Should a woman be able to teach in church just like a man? And so at first I was like, I didn't have no problem with a woman because you never know if a Yah has inspired something to put something on a woman's heart to give to the masses. And then uh, when you look at the woman at the well, when she went to go tell others, but the difference is that that wasn't in predict in a church setting. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn with me in first Corinthians 
14, verse 34 and 35. I kind of want to ask the pastor, um, can we dissect this scripture a little bit more that Paul had wrote? And again, that's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. And it reads, let your women keep silence in the assemblies, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, also as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the assembly. So with that, Pastor... My question is this. Um, is this Paul's opinion that a woman should be silenced in the church? Or uh, is Paul referencing a law? He says, it, uh, he says also says the law. Um, what laws are he referring to there? Uh, to say that women, women, shouldn't, uh, women should be silenced in the general assemblies. Well, I think we we need to address the issue that is going on here. I think a lot of times people are, say women shouldn't say anything in the church. And I really, I really don't see how uh, this text really verifies a woman not saying anything. Cause so when you say a woman should say anything in church, that's like that's like saying, if I come into the church and I see a woman and I say good morning, mm-hmm. then the woman can't say anything because she in church. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, if you look at it that that narrowly, that she can't say anything in the church, mm-hmm. that means even if the preacher at the end of the service said, did you understand my sermon? She couldn't say anything or whether she understood it or not. If you say she shouldn't say anything in the church, but let 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 let's let's look at the text uh-huh. and let's look, see what Paul is addressing here, and I think that's found in verse thirty-three of the fourteenth chapter. It says, "For Elohim is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as it as in all the churches of the saints." So, what is the church? The church is the gathering of the body, but usually the gathering of the body gather in a certain location, and then the word is taught. Uh-huh. And then, so after saying about the confusion, but he said, let that be peace in the churches. Then notice what it says. He said, let the woman keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Okay, this is basically saying to avoid confusion. Now, what was the f- confusion? Now, I understand from some scholars, they say that when the rabbi said something, mm-hmm. the women would say to their husband, and if you understand anything about the architectural makeup of the synagogue, that when you went into the Jewish synagogue, they had a, a wall that separated the men from the women. And then if you were not a Jew or a person of their faith, you couldn't even come into the uh, the sanctuary. If you remember the Ethiopian eunuchs, he couldn't even get into the temple. He had to go a certain place. Mm-hmm. And then when he, 
when he got out of, he had come to worship there, but when he got there, he couldn't even get in because there was a certain place that he had to be. And so he left. And so Elohim sent Philip to have church on the way, on the way back home because he certainly didn't have it in the synagogue because they wouldn't even let him in. So when you look at the wall that separates the men from the women, and the rabbi might have said something, and the woman says, hey, John, talking to her husband, what, what, what did he mean? And she hollering across the wall and, and saying, and so Paul is saying, wait a minute. He said, we can't, we can't <laughs> have you hollering across that wall to your husband asking what it means. Uh -huh. And then he, goes, then he goes on to say what he means. He said, mm -hmm. and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husband at home. Don't be hollering across the wall. Wait until you get home and ask your husband, and then you can answer that. But you are disturbing. You are confusing the church by doing that. He said, for it is a shame for women to speak in, in the church. Now, going back to the, 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 that was a circumstance. Mm -hmm. That was not that she couldn't teach or do anything. Mm -hmm. That was because she was causing confusion. Now, let me go so far as to say this. If the men were doing the same thing that the women were doing, Paul would say, let not a man speak in the church. Mm. But it's just that the women were doing this, okay. not the men. So he addressed the women. Don't do that. Okay, let us go back to uh, verse 34. It says, as also saith the law. Now, they didn't point out this, this word for law is the nomos. Okay. Nomos. And nomos is equated to the law in the, what we call the Old Testament, in the Torah, okay? Mm -hmm. So the word law here is nomos, and if we would equate the Greek nomos for the Hebrew term for law, it would be Torah. So Hebrew would be Torah, uh -huh. and Greek would be nomos. Nomos. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, nomos means the law. Torah means the law. Now, what was the law? Well, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those were considered the law. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, now, when Paul is talking about the law, I certainly don't think he's talking about a woman could not teach. Mm. Because if he was talking about the law, then he is saying that it must be something in the Torah that teaches about orderlessness. In other words, it's something that teaches about order, not about women not speaking. Why mm -hmm. do I say that? Because if you go to the first five books, that's what Elohim uttered to Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave him those five books. Mm -hmm. And he said nothing about a woman teaching. But he did establish an order. Matter of fact, even in creation, you had an order. Mm -hmm. The first five books of the Bible, the, the first seven days of creation, there was order. He made order. So order is uh, one of the number one things in heaven is order. When you look at the, the celestial bodies, they are in order. Mm -hmm. Everything he made was in order. And so Paul is addressing order, and the Torah also addresses order. Even in the leadership, it says that Moses was a leader. And when Aaron and Moses stood against, when Aaron and Mo Moses was leading Israel, and Miriam and other tribes thought that Moses was taking too much upon them, Elohim told them that he had chosen Moses to lead and they should be under his leadership, just like a woman should also be under the leadership of men. But this is not to say they shouldn't teach. It mm -hmm. is saying they should not disrupt the church. Now, uh, let, let us also, in conjunction with that, let us 
uh, go to First Timothy, First Timothy, and in First Timothy, we want to look at uh, chapter two and verse eleven. First Timothy two eleven. Now here's what First Timothy two eleven says. It said, "Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection." That's not talking about teaching. It's just it's just saying, "Let her learn in silence." Mm. So if she learn in silence, what's she, what's she gonna do? Keep it to herself? If she's a good Christian yeah. or a good follower of the Messiah, what's she gonna do? She gonna do like that woman that's a Samaritan, like a Samaritan woman. She gonna go out and teach others what she learned in silence. Yeah. What she just don't learn and not say anything? That that's that doesn't even make sense. Okay. Now let let's look at the book of uh, Titus. The book of Titus. Okay. In the, in, in 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 the book of Titus, chapter two and verse five. It says, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husband, that the word of Yah be not blasphemed. In other words, he said there are some duties they can do at home, you know, and he's he's addressing that. And there's a lot of passages that, you know, Paul addresses women, but when it comes to uh, a, a teaching, a lot of them said, you know, that a woman shouldn't teach. She, she should not uh, usurp authority over the man. But let me say this. Even a man should not re usurp the authority over another man who is teaching in church. Mm. That's not limited to women. Because when you say you usurp authority, that means you're taking over a position mm -hmm. by violence. He said a woman shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I would assume a man shouldn't do it either. Yeah. Okay, now let us turn to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three says in verse one, he said, likewise, you, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. OK, and it goes on further say in verses five and six. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in Elohim adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Yah, or Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So it's saying they should be in subjection to the husband, but being in subjection to the husband is no, uh, it, it does not mean that they, they could not teach or do anything in it, or speak in, in in the assembly of Elohim's people. And the other thing that we need need to understand that any time Elohim had given a law of what you shouldn't do, uh -huh. He also gave the penalty. Uh -huh. So if a woman did speak in the church, tell me what what is the penalty? True. You say it came from the law, so what is the penalty if she spoke yeah. in church? Yeah. It doesn't say. No, sometimes we can twist these scriptures. Just because we're a male chauvinist and we want the church to be a uh, male church, but even the church itself is represented by a woman. So Elohim, in my estimation, is saying both the man and the woman can speak, but under a uh, peaceful condition and not to cause confusion. But you know, it makes sense because I guess most of these people that say that have never really studied into the sanctuary to understand how, or the temple, how it was set up. It makes a lot of sense. If you have mm -hmm. a wall there and somebody's yelling across the wall to the husband, which is on the other side, yeah, that's good. that would be disruptive. 
So therefore, mm. yeah, understand. Rather, like you said, it could have been men. He probably would have wrote uh, that a man should be silenced too, and everything, because yeah. uh-huh. because no, just go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say when you studied the architectural layout of the uh, of the synagogue at the time, mm-hmm. you would see that it had it had a certain division of wall, and it shows you the men's apartment and the woman's apartment. Mm-hmm. And so when you looked at the architectural layout of the church, you can see that how that is feasible, what the wom- the woman was doing. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone uh, has written in and said, doesn't Joel 2.28 and Acts 2.17 support women speaking in church? Yeah, but the only thing about, uh, uh, only thing about those texts that you read, um, uh, mm-hmm. Those who read them, who take the position that a woman does not speak, they they wouldn't nullify and put down those texts because of the fact it doesn't fit their narrative. Mm-hmm. Okay, because we know that Aquila and Priscilla, they taught one of the they taught one of the greatest preachers in the world, and that was Apollos. Mm. See, pa- Apollos came along with Paul, and uh, Apollos was preaching some stuff. And Aquila and Priscilla, they they were the man and the woman. Mm-hmm. They had to set the uh, Apollos down, and they taught him. And he was appreciative of them teaching him. And after he had taught him, then they were able to uh, help him on on his journey. Mm-hmm. So if a woman wasn't to teach, I don't think Apollos would have been straightened out with some of the things that he was teaching, you know. So it's it's a it's and Philip had <clears throat> six daughters that prophesied, and when you prophesied, you got to be teaching somebody something. Yeah. <clears throat> so here we find in in Joel, the second chapter, <clears throat> it says, uh, in verse twenty eight, it says, and it shall come to pass that afterwards I will pour out my spirit. Of uh, upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall be visions. So Elohim is pointing out uh, here in this particular uh, uh, passage mm-hmm. uh, what was going to come to pass. So when we look at that, then when we look at the Pentecostal experience, the Bible says in 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 uh, chapter two of uh, of of the book of Acts. It says in verse 16, but this is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet. And it repeats the same words that we just read. Mm -hmm. And it should come to pass in the last days with Elohim, I will pour out my spirit or my Ruach upon all flesh. Now, now you're going to tell me that all flesh does not include women? (laughs) But that's where we come from. We came from the woman. True. Another thing we need to understand about the woman, the woman didn't have to wait until she gave birth to the child to teach the child. Her prenatal care of teaching the child was in the womb. Mm. Her emotions, Mm -hmm. her thoughts, and everything went into that child. Mm -hmm. So she was teaching the child in the womb. So she didn't have to wait until he came out. She was teaching that child right in the womb. So he said upon all flesh. So all flesh, last time I looked at all flesh, women were a part of that. And your sons and your daughters, it pointed out again, your sons and your daughters, she'll prophesy. Prophesy is a way of teaching. Yeah. 
and your young man shall see visions. He covers even a young man, and your old man shall dream dreams. Yeah. So, yes, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, and a fulfillment of prophecy is that the women will take a, a vocal part. She will be a teacher, yes. You may not like it, but that's what the words say. But, you know, too, you have these guys out here who say, well, some verses specifically say men and not women. But when you start to study in Hebrew, as well as in Spanish and French, and French a lot of these romantic languages, they have a masculine and a feminine word. You generally will use the feminine around other women, but no soon as if it's just one male in the presence of women, then you go to the masculine. So a lot of times I believe in scripture where it says man, it's not just speaking of man just alone. It's speaking of man and woman because yeah. of the one man just to be there. Right. Because if you use that analogy that, uh, when he says man, he's not talking about the woman, then you're going to have a problem with the fact that he says to man that they are to not eat of the unclean things of the animals. Mm -hmm. They should only eat the clean. Mm -hmm. So if he's talking to the man, then I mean the woman can eat the unclean then if he mm -hmm. ain't talking to her. True. You know, if, True. if you just pin it down that every time he mentions man, that is not talking about the woman. You know, yeah. a lot of things a woman wouldn't have to do. And and it, and it's interesting, too, you know, when you hear it, when I hear these guys talk about it. But then I can't recall the name, the verse, but it talks about how the, the woman is of the man. So mm -hmm. if the woman is of the man, when when he's speaking is to both, not just one, but to both. You mm -hmm. know, yeah, that's that's in a generic sense, because in a generic sense, when you say a man. You're talking about man and woman. Uh -huh. So when you say man and woman, the the woman is is a man, but she's a she's a, she's the man with the womb, uh -huh. but she's still a man. And he says, and now let us look at this in 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 Genesis. Let us, let us look at this in Genesis the uh, fifth chapter. And the Bible says this. Uh, uh, the Bible says in Genesis 5, verse 2, notice what it says. It said, male and female created he them. And he blessed them, and he called their name. What did he call their name? He said, they both shall be named Adam. Uh -huh. What does Adam? Adam means man. That's what it means. He said, they called their names. They yeah. both was named Adam. They both were men, but one was the, uh, the man with the womb, which was the woman. Uh -huh. So when we look at that, it's inclusive that when we talk about man, uh, in general, it's talking about man and woman. But if we talk specifically, a man is a husband and a woman is a wife. Yeah. That's specifically. But generally, when it says man, he's talking about both man and woman. Both man and woman. Yeah, I, I just think it's just that male chauvinist thing that only a man should teach, which is crazy to me because if that's the case, then these guys, you shouldn't be sending your kids to be taught by a woman in school and all, if that's the case. And then I see in a lot of these religions, too, that don't want a woman to speak. They can teach other little things inside the church, but just not be the main speaker in the pulpit. But I don't recall anywhere in Scripture where it says a woman can't be in the pulpit and speak because... The thing, if, if Yah impressed, Yah may impress something on a woman's heart, 
a specific woman's heart that he didn't impress on a man that she may need to deliver to the mm-hmm. masses. You know, so you telling me, cause, because I believe Yah gives everybody different things. Mm-hmm, and so this woman may have a piece to the puzzle, but you don't want to listen to her because she's a woman. You know, that that's, that's ridiculous and that's crazy. Yeah. It's like fire people, some of the same people that said, your woman can't teach, yet they lead choirs. Mm-hmm. That's a they form have, of teaching. They, they have plays in churches, and sometimes women read the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So if you got your woman up there training a choir, people learn more from music sometimes than they learn from a sermon. Yeah. They learn from plays a lot of times. Because when you have a play that is uh, directed by a woman, isn't that her teaching you? And then when you read the scriptures, isn't that teaching you? All, all of that's teaching. Yeah. So if we say a woman should be silent in the assembly without really understanding in the context of which Paul is talking, uh, the the woman, well, really, she doesn't really even need a tongue because it's nothing she could do. Yeah. I mean... Nothing she could do. What, what, what you going to do? Most people that express themselves, they express themselves through words. True. True. So, um, I can say for me that I believe a woman should speak in church. Uh, I don't think it's any proof in scripture. It's just a male chauvinist type of mindset that I think a lot of these guys have. And, 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 you know, it, I think a lot of it is, is ego and power tripping, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, a lot of it. And, and the thing is, you know, s- some men want to say, well, men should be higher. No, y- y'all created man and woman equal. They work together. They come together as one unit. If, if you're one unit, you cannot, no one can be above, no one can be lower because y'all one unit, you know, because he said he, man and female, he created he them that they would come together and join and become one. That's right. Well, Pastor, with that, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out for this week? Okay. I love it, Father again. We thank you that we could uh, just come spend a moment together and to be able to discuss your word and ask questions and to be able to get clarification and most of all, to build a relationship with one another and also with thee. For the strongest bond we can have is with you, oh, Father. And as we bind with you, we ask that the power of your Holy Spirit may continue to convince and to be able to lead us in the truth that we can unmistakably know that we're standing upon the premise that you have laid down. Now, Father, as we go through the Sabbath, continue to give us the Sabbath day's blessing. Refresh us and renew and revitalize us on this day that we may be better prepared to go into another week. Continue to bless those who have suffered the loss of loved ones, those who are sick and shut in, And most of all, Lord, those who are in the world without you, that they may find you and to be able to know that this world is not the end, but is a place that you have put us for the dressing room for the kingdom that is yet to come. Help us to reach out to others and to be able to let them share in the good news that we have, that they can prepare themselves for the eternal kingdom. Now, bless, keep, guide, and direct us this day in Yeshua's name. We do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. You want to make sure and mark your calendars. 
every Shabbat, every Saturday at 3 o'clock, we go live. And next week, part five, Science of the Sacrifice, and you're going to be dealing with Mary. Where did Mary get her seed? That's what you're going to be dealing with next week. That. Hello? Uh-huh. Yeah, I was asked. So next week you're going to be dealing with where did Mary get her seed? Yeah, we're going we're gonna, uh, we're gonna to pinpoint exactly where that seed comes from. Uh, uh, the reason for that is once you know where the seed comes from, mm-hmm. see, because, see, a lot of times we've been taught in the Bible about the sacrificial animals. And so we want to see where did the sacrifice come from because the animals only represented their sacrifice, but we want to see exactly where that sacrifice came from. Okay. And this is where, by the grace of Elohim, if you permit us next week, we want to look exactly where did Mary's seed come from. All right. So if you mark your calendars, he's going to be dealing with next week, Shabbat, February the 11th at 3 p.m. we begin. Where did the seed of Mary come from? And with that, that is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. All the paths of Yahuwah are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenants and his testimonies. Matthew 25, 10. Until next week, Shalom.